You can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through Mark. I don't know if you remember when we started Mark. Many of you weren't even here when we started the Gospel of Mark. Um, we started in January of 2020, and we're more than a year and a half in now. I've preached 53 sermons, and we just finished chapter 9. I don't know what the math is for how many sermons that is per chapter, um, but we're trying to uh, take it like it's a sponge and just wring everything out of it, everything we can get out of it. And there's many of these places that we come to that it's just necessary to pause and to unpack and to go slow and to, uh, to really try to build foundations. And this is another one of those parts. I mean, this is the Word of God, right? This is the Holy Word of God that reveals to us the character of God, the will of God for our lives. It tells us who we are and what we need to do and be. And it is powerful. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. Uh, these are the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Uh, where else would we go to know the truth? So we're going to open up the scriptures again because our commitment is to uh, what is called sequential exposition. You hopefully have heard that phrase if you've been here. We want to exposit the Word of God in a sequence, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, so that we can know God's Word rather than uh, play hopscotch from topic to topic, uh, you know, riding whatever hobby horse we see fit for the day. We want to just let God set the agenda and work through the passages of Scripture. And so we find ourselves in chapter 10 of Mark, and we find ourselves uh, in front of a portion of Scripture that is a, a, a touchy subject. It's going to be one that is super helpful for us to understand God's design for marriage. This is the beauty, by the way, of sequential exposition. You know, you just go through the text and let God set the agenda for what we're preaching, and he tends to cover all the relevant subjects that you need to cover. And so here we are, just last section we were in was all about uh, dealing with sin in your life and pursuing sanctification. I think we needed to hear that. And now we're talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And this is stuff that we need to hear now. And we need to establish our understanding of a biblical marriage. And as I began to study this, I really had good intentions to fit this whole section in one sermon great intentions. The intentions were pure. I wanted to just, you know, 12 verses, one sermon. Friends, it ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. We, we, it's just so much. And again, so much of it is foundational. And so, so much of it, we're going to be going back and looking. Jesus is quoting Genesis all over the place. We're going to go back to Genesis and we're going to read the text um, as we study the topic of marriage. I wonder how you feel, you know, coming to church on a Sunday morning and the topic is marriage and divorce and remarriage. Some of you might feel like, well, that's not about me. Some of you might be feeling, man, I really need to hear this. Some of you might be feeling, man, I don't want to hear this. Um, but the Word of God is for us. The Word of God is good for us. It is food for us. So whatever your feelings are this morning, I, I praise the Lord that He's infinitely wise and He knows what we need. And so He's in unpack this. Wherever you are in life, whatever stage, married or not, whatever kind of marriage you have, it's healthy and great and awesome, or we're struggling, it's difficult, God has a word for you. And so when we just unpack it, we'll begin to see what he has for us. And, and, and what I began to think about as I came to the conclusion that this was not going to be a one-and-done sermon um, as we work through this, it might take a month to get through these 12 verses based on all the stuff we're going to be talking about. Um, I hope you can marinate in this a little bit. So you can go back and read these things. And let me just offer this to you that I, I manuscript all the stuff I preach. It's all just, you know, one big manuscript. And if there was something you're like, I want to think about that more. Let me just say, you can ask me, and I'll just send you the manuscript if you want to read through some of the verses that I'm citing or the quotes or the sources or whatever. Um, that is available to you just as another resource for your own personal study. So if any of these next sermons over the next couple of weeks are something you want to continue thinking about and meditating on, just let me know, and I can try to help you out or point you to other resources that would be more helpful. There's two things that come to mind as we begin to think about the topic of marriage. First of all, it's this. 
is that the Bible presents marriage as a joy, a blessing, a gift, a delight, something that can satisfy, something that we are to enjoy, something that can make us happy, and something that is God-honoring. It is something that God designed, God made up, and God gives for the good of his people. It is an invention of God so that we might be blessed by him and that we might glorify him for the gift that he's given us. Read the Song of Solomon if you doubt me. Because that is a book that puts on display the bliss of marital harmony. Now, that's my first point. The first point is that the Bible presents marriage as being a gift, a blessing, and all these great things. The second point is that marriage often is not that. Marriage is often very difficult for us. And I would say that the state of marriage in America is positively dreadful. And I would also add that the American church is not immune to the problems that have been infiltrating marriages over the last who knows how long. We're in a cultural moment where marriage is under attack. And as I was studying this, it's just hard for me to overstate the urgency of what Jesus teaches here. Like, I don't know if I could use hyperbole because hyperbole might be more accurate because the moment is so significant right now in our society because marriage is a bullseye, because the family is a target, and if, God, uh, if God's going to work through us, we need strong marriages and strong families, and if the enemy wants to make significant progress against the church, where is he going to aim? He's going to aim for that household, and he's going to aim for that Marriage, it's happening all around us, and it's even something that is in the church, the church at large, Christians struggle with this. Jay Adams, uh, God used Jay Adams to really ignite what is called the biblical counseling movement. He was a pastor, but that devoted a lot of time not only to preaching, but to counseling, to meeting with one-on-one with other people in his church and developing a counseling ministry. And he said this, everyone who has done any counseling at all soon becomes aware of the fact that there are more family and marriage problems than all the rest put together. Counseling often relates itself to the problems that are in the home because it has the target I remember talking to a pastor who took a pastor to the small Baptist church, and as he got started, he began to get to know people. It wasn't a big church. It was mostly older people, and as he got to know them, he realized that every single family present in his congregation had suffered the miseries of a broken marriage, and many of the children, if not all of the children, had abandoned the faith due to the dysfunction they saw in their homes growing up. Marriage is an institution created by God. It's the first institution he created. It's the most foundational institution that he created. If the marriage goes, society goes. If marriage is weak, if marriages are crumbling, if marriages are dysfunctional, the ripple effects are all throughout civilization. Weak marriages will make weak nations, weak communities, weak churches, and weak children who can perpetuate the weakness by then raising themselves up as weak spouses to one another and then more weak families and so on and so forth it goes. The enemy, as you know, hates marriage. The enemy is against it and wants to destroy it. And if you're aware, if you watch TV, if you watch the movies, even the commercials that come on when you're flipping between channels, you know that there is a kind of missionary zeal against traditional values in the home that the secular world wants to impose on the church. Have you noticed this? And the reason I use the word missionary zeal is because the secular values are not content to just let Christians act like Christians in the privacy of their own home. No, they want to infiltrate the home through any music or any movie or any show the values of the secular world are being pressed upon the families, even Christian families. Our kids are being taught and catechized. Our families are being influenced. And so there's a burden, as I think about the issue of marriage, there's a burden, first of all, to preach the text here. 
I want us to see what God's design for marriage is. I want Jesus' message to be loud and clear no matter how countercultural it is. I want it to counteract that sugar-coated message that comes to us, that it's in the air we breathe, that is in every media that we take in. But additionally, to preaching the text, I want to ask fathers to perk up and mothers to listen up. Because parents, as you live your lives together as husband and wife, and aim to raise up another generation of kids, it is up to us, parents, to instill biblical values in the next generation. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, we need to not only know what God has said about marriage, but then be able to pass on the values that God has given us to other generations to raise our kids in the truth, to take responsibility, to teach them and to dig down deep so they can have roots that can withstand the hurricane that they're living in that I don't think will get any better in the decades to come. I mean, you even voice an opinion that aligns with conservative values as it relates to the family, and there are consequences in the secular workplace. We got to own this. We gotta be willing to know and suffer for these things. I wanna guide your attention now to, to Mark. Because interestingly, Jesus is gonna, you know, hit some buttons when he holds his view of marriage. So Jesus is in hot water all those years ago, just as we will be for holding biblical values. His situation, though a little bit different, is similar to ours. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. I want you to follow along with me. Then we'll begin to unpack it. So, and he left there. That's talking about Jesus. Left there. The there is referring back to 933, which is Capernaum, where he'd done a lot of ministry in the past there. And he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Uh, this, just so you know, is some geography. is an area that's sometimes called Perea. And to remind you, a few chapters back, we talked about Herod Antipas. This is back when we were in the tent months ago. Um, Herod Antipas killing John the Baptist because of uh, his wife and because John the Baptist was accusing Herod of being immoral in his marriage. And so the two, those two, John or, uh, Herod and his wife Herodias, had John the Baptist killed. Well, they're in that region. Okay, tuck that away. That will come into play a little bit later. The, the, the disciples and Jesus are in the region where Herod is in charge beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, Jesus taught them. He's going to keep teaching them because fundamentally what people need is the truth. They need to know the truth he can heal, you know, he can do the miracles and all that will draw the crowd and excite the crowd, but what people need to know is truth. Nothing has changed on that front. We need truth. And so we teach God's word. Here, verse 2. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God is joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she, com if, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So back to the beginning. They're in the region of Perea. They're around John the Baptist. Sorry, I keep saying John the Baptist. They're around where Herod was, where John the Baptist was killed. The Pharisees come up, with a question. Now, I wonder if you noticed the critical word in the way they approached Jesus. Did you see it? They came up in order to test 
test him. That really gives you a little insight into their motives, doesn't it? That word test is also, also translated tempt in other places in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's something that indicates that their motivations weren't exactly pure. That there's a sinister thing going on here. They wanted to test Jesus. They wanted to tempt Jesus. And in fact, if you were to go back to chapter 3 and verse 6, you would remember that the Pharisees, after having several encounters with Jesus, uh, that Jesus kept lambasting them, he kept undercutting their self-righteous religion, the Pharisees became so fed up with it, they didn't know what to do with it, so they figured, we're going to try to discredit this guy. And so they began planning how they're going to destroy Jesus. And in fact, chapter 3, verse 6, says that they made plans with the Herodians, who were political allies to Herod. So the Pharisees are conspiring with Herod's allies to figure out how they're going to discredit and even destroy Jesus. And so time has passed. Now Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem. He's teaching the crowds and the Pharisees come up to test or to tempt Jesus, to trap him. That's what they want to do. They want to get him to say something that will get him into trouble. It's like slapping the mic in his face and say, hey, what do you think about this highly controversial topic? And hoping that Jesus says something, he trips over his words, or he says something bad, or says something that's unpopular, and suddenly the crowds turn against him. That's, that's what the Pharisees are aiming to do. Now, even more than that, the location, I think, gives the hint of what was going on here. Because they know that John the Baptist was killed. Why? What was John the Baptist doing that caused the, the elite to want to get him destroyed? Do you remember what he was doing? In chapter 6, it says John the Baptist was calling out Herod for leaving his wife and marrying his brother Philip's wife. In other words, what got John the Baptist into hot water was for holding two conservative biblical traditional marriage values. And when the elite got wind of what John was saying, it so upset them that Herodias wanted to kill John the Baptist, and she ended up getting her way. John the Baptist was killed. That was some time ago. Jesus now enters into the same region. And so the Pharisees are going, hmm, well, remember how we eliminated John the Baptist? We brought up marriage. Maybe that'll work with Jesus. Let's see what Jesus says about me. Maybe we can, you know, coax him along. We could get him to say some things about some people who are in power, and maybe those people will then do the job for us. Maybe we can trip him. Maybe we can get the crowds to turn against him. And so they bring up what was, even back then, a highly controversial question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, there were some schools of thought but the, that the rabbis had taught Jews in those days. There was Rabbi Hillel, uh, and there's Rabbi Shammai, were the two main ones. And they're kind of these two schools of thought that every Jew was familiar with these rabbis, and they studied their teachings. And each one of them had totally different views of marriage. Rabbi Hillel held the view that you could basically divorce your wife for whatever reason. There's even... Uh, stuff in the ancient Jewish writings that if, uh, if your wife burnt your supper, you were allowed to divorce her. You know, that, how's that for grounds for divorce? The toast is burned, uh, you're out. Let's get a wife that won't burn the toast. Um, you know, you had this, this kind of really loose uh, marriage commitment. It wasn't very much a commitment at all because you were really allowed to divorce the woman whenever you wanted to. And then there was Rabbi Shammai who was a little more strict, more biblical, we would say. He would say, well, no, the marriage covenant is for life except in matters of adultery where the covenant is broken. You know, the, these two uh, rabbis taught these mainstream ideas, but the majority of Jews in Jesus' day, guess whose side they took? They were with Hillel. In other words, they believed that marriage for just about any reason was valid. It was okay. You know, as long as you had some sort of grievance, you could divorce your wife. One scholar uh, put it this way. David E. Garland wrote that the husband's absolute right to divorce his wife was taken for granted by nearly all the Jews. 
In other words, nearly every Jew had sided with Hillel and said that this is okay, this is good, divorce ought to be free and often and for whatever reason. And that was the, those were kind of the dueling views points that uh, the Jews uh, had thought about. And so look at how Jesus responds to this question. And it really does seem like the Jews are asking him, hey, whose side are you on, Shammai or Hillel? Like, which, which stream do you take? And if you're going to side with Shammai, you're going to kind of be outside the mainstream, and that might put him in hot water. And so they're asking him that. And look at what he does. He doesn't, he doesn't even give any credence to the current debate. Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? In other words, let's go back to the original. Let's go back to the original. Let's go back to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, written by uh, Moses, the man of God. Let's not go to these rabbis. Let's go back to the scriptures. What did Moses say? What did Moses say? And look at what they say in verse 4. The Pharisees respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Let me just pause right here real quick. When you read the Pharisees quoting scripture, be suspicious. Don't take what they're saying for granted because if you just think that that's correct, you'd be wrong. Remember how Jesus constantly rebuked them. Have you not read? Have you not read? You think it says this, but it says this. You've got it wrong. Haven't you searched the scriptures? I mean, Jesus is constantly having to correct these guys. And so they, ask, they, they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Okay, let's evaluate that claim. Are they pointing to anything in the Old Testament? Well, the debate, even prior to the coming of Christ, it's all throughout all ancient Jewish literature, is all about Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to invite you to turn back there. You're going to go back to Deuteronomy verse 24. Because this was the text that the Pharisees used to allow them to do their divorces. This is what they thought rationalized their ability to get a divorce. This is what they thought freed them to get a divorce whenever they wanted it, even for the burnt supper. It was all coming back to Deuteronomy 24 in the first few verses there. I want you to see this. When a man, okay, here it is. Here it is, ready? Let's see if you draw the same conclusion as the Pharisees. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found something indecent or some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. What do you think about that one? Is that legitimized divorce? There's a couple things to notice here. First of all, if you were paying attention, that text gives no evaluative judgment on divorce at all. It's just describing a scenario. Did you notice it's an if-then statement? If this happens, if that happens, if that happens, if that happens, then, and the then command is, then don't remarry the wife that got sent away and then married another man and then came back to you. Don't marry her again. And there's a good reason why they had that law because what was happening is the Jewish men were basically going, you know what, I can leave my wife, I can get rid of her, and she can go marry someone else while I, you know, check out other options. But if that guy dies and it doesn't work out here, then I can get remarried to her. In other words, there's a couple things to notice about this, is that this is not legitimizing the Jews getting divorces. It's just saying if someone does this, they're not allowed to remarry the woman that they left in the first place. It's not an allowance for divorce. You guys see that? It's a, it's a conditional statement. If in this very specific condition must be met, and if it's met, then, the condi- or then the, what they're not allowed to do, the then part of the statement is they're not allowed to remarry the woman they once left and the woman that had been married to another man. 
And the whole thing was a way of regulating divorce so husbands wouldn't just flippantly leave their wives with the option of maybe remarrying them down the road. It was protecting women. That's what the law was for. Now, it didn't say you should do that. It didn't say divorce is good. It didn't give a grounds for divorce. That whole idea of uh, some indecency. You see that in verse 1? Some indecency. It's not saying that indecency is a grounds for divorce. It's just saying some guys were saying it was a grounds for divorce and they were leaving their wives for it. And that was not the way it should be. Which is why, go back to what Jesus said in response. By the way, you're going to want to keep your your hands in two places. We're going to be in Mark. We're going to look at it again. Then we're going to go back to Genesis here in a moment. So this is why Jesus responds to them by saying, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, the whole conditions that Moses had to give to the married people in those days was to regulate their sinful patterns. It was because of their sin, their hardness of heart, that Moses had to write those things. But in no way was it legitimizing or allowing divorce. It's not what was happening there. Which is why then, back to Jesus, verse 6 in Mark 10, he goes not to Deuteronomy to build his case for marriage, like the rabbis were doing. All the rabbis were basing their argumentation on Deuteronomy 24. Jesus goes even earlier to Genesis 1 and 2. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Let's go back from the, to the very beginning. God made them male and female. You want to talk about Deuteronomy, but you're talking about an issue where the Israelites were in sin, and you're talking about this very specific regulation as if it's some normative way to live. It's not. And let's go back to where God described the design of creation, or sorry, the design of marriage. So here's here's what we need to get to the point of. So in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had a very loosey-goosey view of marriage. You can kind of get divorced whenever you want. You go back to Deuteronomy in Israel's day, they were abusing the marriage covenant too by getting divorces whenever they wanted. In other words, we're in good company here in America because it seems like people from all generations have had wrong views of marriage that has caused them to think that it's okay at any point whenever it's too hard or whatever. I can divorce my spouse if necessary. And today we are ministering in a society that gives both men and women the absolute right to divorce their spouses. That's why we, like Jesus, need to go back to the very beginning where Jesus quotes Genesis. 1969, California was the first state to allow and enact no-fault divorce when the then governor, Ronald Reagan, signed it into law. Celebrities get married and divorced like it's their hobby. And too often the church doesn't know how to respond or has imbibed ideas of the culture about marriage and divorce that is like acid to the family. So we go back to Genesis, we go back to the very beginning Now, what I'm going to show you here, let's look at Mark 10 real quick before before we go to Genesis. Jesus' response to the flippant view of divorce, he responds with four big foundational ideas. Guess how many we're going to get through this morning? One. (laughs) He says, from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Foundational idea number one, male and female. God's design for man and woman, okay? That's what we'll look at this morning. Number two, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The second principle for marriage is the leave, cleave, and weave principle that we're gonna unpack, Lord willing, next week. Then, verse nine, What therefore God has joined together, we're going to look at the principle of God's providence in marriage. See, the Bible, Jesus says that God joined you and your spouse together. 
in providence. It's not something you chose ultimately. It's what God chose in eternity past. So we got to understand the principle of gender. We got to understand the principle of marriage. We got to understand the principle of providence. And then lastly, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And that's the principle of permanence. So Jesus gives those four reasons those four foundational truths to undergird the biblical understanding of marriage. This morning, we're going to look at those verses in Genesis where Jesus taught God made them male and female. And I'm going to invite you to turn all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, really are critical to understanding most of the world. Just about every issue you can imagine comes up in the first 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 help you understand God, yourself, creation, man, woman, marriage, sin. All those things are right there. And so to understand marriage, we've got to understand gender. To understand gender, we've got to go all the way back to the very beginning. And what we're, where we're going to start is... Verse 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What that means is that God is God and you are not. What that means is that God is the designer of creation and we are not. That means that God determines truth and we do not. That means that God is not dependent on us to exist. We don't make him up. He is existing objectively and eternally as God. He is not a figment of our imagination. As he reveals himself, so he is eternally, even if no one recognizes him for who he is. So he determines truth. He is the revealer of absolute truth. Culture does not reveal truth. You don't, you don't make up truth. We don't get to reason our way to truth. What God has said is true. And so he creates the world. He creates animals. And he comes to the end. And look at verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish over the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That's what Jesus is quoting as he responds to these Pharisees' test question. Okay, you think that you can just divorce your wife whenever you want because you're referring to a faulty interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Let's go back to the beginning and let's start with the very basics of this. God made men and women in his image, male and female in his image. I want to unpack six observations about male and female from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, okay? Because I think this is the kind of stuff we need to have uh, in our bones. We've got to really get this stuff and have conviction about it. And if we don't, the winds of culture will blow us down. So we have to have a clear understanding of male and female and what God's design is for them in the scriptures. First observation, God designed gender or God designed male and female. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female is God's idea. Male and female is part of his creation. If you could imagine a world that's only shades of gray, it would be far less beautiful than the world that God has made. And if we think that God in his creation only made one gender or didn't assign that, God, we would be wrong because God is creative. He creates diversity, even in unity. He creates male and female. They are part of his beautiful design. Secondly, God assigns gender. Adam is male. Eve is female. God made them male and female. It is the choice of God 
to give to each person who is born a sex, a gender, to be male or to be female. God designs it because it's beautiful, and God assigns it because he's God. Third, both men and women are image bearers. Did you see that? In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Both male and female are created by God to reflect the glory of God in the world he created. To be an image bearer, uh, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, kings would often create these pillars and they would have carved at the top of, a, of the pillar uh, their own likeness, their own image. And they would put those pillars on the borders of their territory as evidence that, hey, if you pass these pillars, you're entering into our or my land. In the same way, God created male and female to be like him, to bear his likeness, to bear his image, and he put us in this world, and we are to rule over this world, to live in this world, and to, in doing so, reflect the good character of God. Men and women are both image bearers of the holy God. Therefore, every single man deserves respect and dignity, and every single woman deserves respect and dignity in any religion that would say otherwise, that would rob male or female of their inherent God-given dignity is anti-God because God has said that he's invested his image in male and female. Fourth, men and women are different by design and have different roles. I want to first look at the creation of the man and show you how this takes place, and then we'll look at the creation of the woman and show you that she's different by design and has a different role as well. First, look at chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2 takes the creation of the woman and the man in chapter 1, which is very general, and chapter 2 gets very specific. It tells the story of how it happened. And we go to chapter 2, verse 7, and it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Already, if you know the story, you know that there's differences in how God created the man versus how he created the woman. The man was not created from a rib, but the woman was. The man was not created in the garden, the woman was. The man was created outside the garden. It says there in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden, this is after the creation of man, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So man's created outside the garden, put inside the garden to uh, be in it to work it and to keep it. We're going to see that here in a second. You look there in verse 15. Skip down a little bit. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Underline those words if you have not yet in your Bible and you want to understand the creation of man and his design and what it means for who he is you ought to understand that man was originally created and designed to work and keep. Verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Eve does not yet exist. The man was made to work to keep the garden and he's the first one there given a command to watch over that garden and to ensure that he or anyone else that comes after him does not eat from the forbidden tree. So here's this man, created outside the garden, put in the garden. He's given a responsibility to work and to keep. These words, work and keep, are significant words that actually come up again throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew. It is all, those words are also used to describe what the priests would do in Israel, they would work and keep the temple. It's a priestly function, a responsibility, a kind of leadership function. Uh, one scholar named Richard Phillips was comments on it. He says the word for work in Hebrew is the word avad. Synonyms would include serve, labor, cultivate, build. He says Christian men should also desire to cultivate something worthwhile for the glory of God and the well-being of their fellow men. 
that the first man, Adam, and every man after him was created with this impulse to be a worker and a keeper, a builder and a protector, uh, a fixer, uh, to, to try to fix problems. Ladies, that's why when you come to us with some issue and you say, hey, I got this problem, what did the men try to do? We just got to fix that problem. We're just going to try to fix it. Fix it. Doesn't always work like that, as I found out. We are builders, protectors, cultivators, fixers. We, uh, we work with our hands. This is the design of the man. The Hebrew word for keep is different. It's the word shamar. And it's that word that has to do with to watch, to stand guard, to protect. The idea is kind of related to the idea of a fortress. That the man is to be a worker who serves, labors, cultivates, builds, fixes, develops, and he's to be a keeper, that he is a watchman, he's a guard, he's a protector, he's a provider, he creates stability, he creates security. Again, the scholar Phillips on this word says, to be a man is to stand up and be counted when there is danger or other evil. God does not desire for men to stand idly by and allow harm or to permit wickedness to exert itself. Rather, we are called to keep others safe within all the covenant relationships we enter. In our families, our presence is to make our wives and children feel secure and at ease. At church, we are to stand for truth and godliness and against the encroachment of worldliness and error. In society, we are to take our places as men who stand up against evil and who defend the nation from threat of danger. See, men are supposed to be builders and workers and providers and protectors who stand up and don't flee, which is why, by the way, one of the worst insults a man could receive is to be called a coward, someone who retreats when it's getting too hard. Someone who runs away when it's getting too difficult. This is what men are called, they are called to fight for their marriages, to fight for their children, to fight for their homes, to raise their children, to nurture and cultivate them. Just as Adam cultivated the garden, so the man is called to cultivate and build up his house. And he's the head of that household, and he's called to do that, working and protecting everyone under his care, even at the point that he must lay down his life to protect them. That's what it means to be a man. And those who run from true biblical masculinity and they don't take responsibility, they run from difficulty, they run from hard things in their marriage, they run from hard things in their home, they don't know how to correct and raise their children, and so they're running from that too. They run from responsibility, they don't stand up when they're accounted for, is not masculine, it's not according to God's design for men, and it is to go against the creational design that God has put on men. So God has called us men to rise up, to be biblical men, masculine men, even though the world right now will say that masculinity is abusive. Biblical masculinity would rather die than see you suffer. And that's what I want to call the men to. And that's essential to understanding marriage. Because you don't understand what a man is, which most of our society doesn't today, if you don't understand what a man is, how is it possible to understand a marriage which is made up of a man and a woman? But let's not just stop with the man. Let's look at the woman. So verse 18 in chapter 2. And the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Husband, say amen. That's right. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, okay? I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Let's look at those two words, helper fit. Adam has been given this responsibility to guard and keep, build and cultivate, labor for the, uh, the good protection of that place in that woman that he will be given. That's his responsibility, but he's alone. It's a problem. And so God creates a helper fit for him to help him and assist him in that responsibility. That is what the woman is called to be and to do. That is what she is designed for. She is a helper corresponding to the man. Now, there are some people who hear that word helper and they cringe. Uh, they, they don't want to be a helper. It makes them feel secondary or not as important. And let me just tell you this. 
That word helper in the Hebrew is ezer. And that word is often used to describe God himself. God is a helper. God is our help. God helps Israel. God condescends to help sinful people who don't deserve it. And when Eve is created in the image of God, one of the highest callings she receives is to imitate God and to reflect his glory by imitating the God who is the helper of Israel, the God who is the helper of his people. And so she adopts that posture toward her husband, and she is to be imitating God, though imperfectly, as she helps her husband in the responsibilities God has given him. She is to use her strength, her intelligence, her wisdom, her ideas to build up that man and to build up that garden to do whatever she can to assist in the responsibility God has given both of them. Which, by the way, if you go back in chapter 1, when God said that they were supposed to rule and subdue the creation, who is he talking to? Both of them. So they have this mandate where they both are part of this responsibility to live before God in the world, but they have different roles to play you've played any sports, team sports, you'll know that there are parts of the team that are integral to the success of the whole team, but there's different roles that are played. So she's a helper, an ezer, like God. But then there's another word, a helper fit, that word fit. You see that? Some translations use the word a helper suitable or a helper, helper corresponding to the man. In other words, Adam gets paraded all the, uh, all the animals before him and all, the, you know, a donkey goes by, an elephant, a hippo, a dog, and, you know, man's best friend is not even going to compare to the woman, right? The woman that God gives is the one that satisfies and the longing of the man that, that meets that problem head on and helps eliminate the problem of aloneness. It's this helper who corresponds to him. See, see, all the other animals can help, like an oxen can help him plow the field, or, you know, it can ride a horse and get from A to B faster. I mean, all these animals can help him, but none of them corresponded to him. None of them were fit for him. Uh, this is what a woman is. She is so like the man in some ways, and yet so different that she is corresponding to him, corresponding to him. Different like a nut and a bolt are different, and yet you use them together. Different like a ball and a glove are different, yet you always find them together. Male and female are different by design. God's good design is that men and women are different, but they are complementary they fit together, they correspond together, and the beauty of God's design is that when they're working together, they can accomplish more than a fraternity of dudes ever could, or a group of women ever could, when men and women working together in their roles according to their biblical calling, it is a beautiful and productive enterprise. So men and women are different by design, and they have different roles. Let's move on to observation number five. Male and female, roles were corrupted by the fall. Chapter three, the fall takes place. I want to point you to the end of chapter, or the middle of chapter three, verse 16, where the curse is falling upon the woman and so to the woman, God says, I'm surely going to multiply your pain in childbearing. Sorry, Ashley, in a few months that's going to be experienced by her. Ashley's my wife, if you don't, if you don't know. Um, she's not here this morning. Wasn't able to be here. That's a, that's a problem. And then it says, in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, 
Now, there's a later ESV version. If you have the 2016 edition, it says something different. It says, your desire shall, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The later edition of the ESV, I think, is actually a better translation than the earlier iterations of the ESV. Because the whole idea is it's saying, because of the curse of sin, the woman's desire will be against her husband. Ordinarily, prior to the introduction of sin into the world... The wife would be there to support and to build and to help and to encourage. And together in perfect harmony, they would rule and subdue the earth. But because of sin, there is a corruption that comes over both man and woman. And what happens to the woman is that she is no longer so certain that she wants to follow that man, support that man, help that man. And so rather than submitting to his headship and helping him, he or she is tempted to usurp that authority and live contrary to his leadership. See that? That's what's happening. You say, well, what happened to the man? Is it only the woman that gets in trouble? No. Look at verse 17. Adam is given this curse because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, what was Adam given the responsibility to work and keep? It was the ground. It was the garden. It was that plot of land that God put him into. Hey, work, keep, cultivate, build. Make this your sanctuary for your family as you work and keep this beautiful garden. And then what does God curse? He curses the very thing Adam was responsible to take care of. The ground gets cursed. Suddenly, he's not going to be able to tend this garden so much easy as he wanted it to be. There's thorns. There's thistles. It's difficult. He can't just put a shovel in the ground anymore. There's old things growing all around him that are getting in the way of him being able to cultivate the garden. This is a problem. And so not only is the ground cursed, we know because Adam introduced sin to the world that he himself is cursed. So what's going to happen to Adam? See, what's going to happen to Adam? He's going to see the difficult labor ahead of him. He's going to do one of two things. He's going to turn into a deadbeat. He's going to become lazy. He's not going to want to do his work. He's not going to want to do his job. He's going to run into hard things and hindrances. He's going to throw up. He's going to run away. He's, going to, he's just going to give up, and he's going to throw in the towel. And that's what's going to happen to Adam if he lets his sin nature overrun him because now it's too hard for him to press on because the ground is cursed. The other problem that he's going to face is he's going to take his authority that God has given him and he's going to use it to abuse the people around him. That's what sin does. It corrupts everything good. And authority, according to Scripture, is good or bad. It is good. But what sin does is it takes a good thing, it twists it, corrupts it, and sin makes authority bad. And what maybe some of you have experienced is bad authority where the people in authority abuse those underneath them. And that is a horrible, horrible thing that happens. And it happens far too often. Because those in authority are to use their authority to bless those who are in their care, not to take from them and use them for their own selfish ends. You say, how does this have anything to do with marriage? It has everything to do with marriage. Because it's biblically masculine for a man to take responsibility, to lead his wife, to cultivate his wife, to cultivate his family, to work, to protect, and to provide, and to create stability, and to create security, and to nurture a family, and to raise them in the Lord. And it's the role of the wife to see that, and to encourage that, and to affirm that, and to help that, and to be a companion, and to be a friend, and to make it better. And I tell you that when a good woman is around a humble man who can be helped, that woman makes that man better in so many ways. And when those two are working together, it's a beautiful thing, but often sin makes the men become deadbeats or they become tyrants. And the wives can become like that Proverbs woman who's the forbidden woman. She's a seductress of other men. Or she can become like that other woman in Proverbs who's always nagging. And so neither of them are filling their roles and it's no wonder that marriage becomes incredibly difficult. And this is why you and I need a Savior. Because your marriage will not work unless it's built on Jesus Christ. 
Men, you cannot be the man your wife needs. You cannot be the man your kids need. You cannot be the man your church needs. You cannot be the man the society needs. If you don't have Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the son of man, who exemplified perfect masculinity, not when he is ruling as king, but when he came and laid his life down for his bride, the church. And unless you recognize that's my call, you will never be able to be what God has called you to be. And so men, repent. Confess your sin. Recognize where you've fallen short and cry out to God for mercy and then look afresh to this perfect man, Jesus Christ, and his word and learn how to be a true man, a man of God, a man like Christ who will not be a coward and run away from all the difficulties life throws at him. And woman, God has called you to be feminine, to embrace your role, to come alongside that man, or if you're single, to use all your gifts in full devotion to the Lord and to his church, to lay your life down at that and for those purposes, and to build people up around you. You're uniquely gifted to do that in the ways that I think men are not. And yet you cannot do that without Jesus either. And that you too must repent and look away from all your internal resources and look to Jesus who redeems men and women and makes them what God designed them to be. You need the gospel. And you need to look at the gospel and think about the gospel every day so that you might be conformed into the image of Christ. And here's the last thing, the last observation. This is what's not happening in our society. Both male and female are part of God's beautiful creation, and here's the kicker, and should be celebrated. Men are ashamed to act like men because everyone's saying that men are abusive and threatening, and too many men are. And so some men are cowering from the call to rise up and act like a man. And women are being encouraged not to act like women. Being encouraged to basically try to be like a man in the world and to do all the things that men do. We're just like men. Nothing's different. Nothing at all. And I want to call the church to be utterly different from the society we find ourselves in. And I want to call us to celebrate masculinity and to celebrate femininity in the lives of the men and women around us. Celebrate it. Cultivate it. Love it. Parents, I'll say this, you're raising kids, you got a boy, celebrate the boyness of your boy. When he gets that black eye and breaks the window, it comes with the territory. Celebrate the boyness of your boy. You know, clean it up later and teach him how to hit the ball better so he doesn't aim right at the window, but, but celebrate your son and say, you are a son and I want you to be a good son, I want you to be a masculine son, I want you to be a biblical son. And women, help your fathers and mothers, help your little girls to be feminine and to understand, not the stereotypes, I'm talking about the Bible, help them understand what it means to be a biblical woman and to fit that role and to love that role. And let's not eschew the biblical roles that God has called us to. Let's say these are beautiful things. Wherever we need help, I'll give some quick application, we're done. Number one, just keep looking to Jesus. Men and women, keep looking to Jesus. Can't do this without him. Can't do this without him. Look to Christ. Number two, I'd say, the practical application, many men have no idea what a good dad looks like. Never saw it in their home growing up. Never saw a good marriage. Have no idea. Friends, that's partially why the church exists. Find someone here who's doing it and just begin that dialogue. You need help. Get it here. God has ordained that the church be a place where you can learn these things. Women, find another woman who could teach you what it is to be a godly woman. Titus chapter 2 makes it so clear. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. Men training men, women training women, all happening informally in the life of the church as we try to honor him in the specific way God made us. And lastly, let's be humble enough to admit the problems that we see in our own lives. To do that, that one's related to the previous one. But I think so many of us are desperately afraid to talk about the difficulties in our marriage because, man, that's personal. 
But if we're not going to be able to talk about it, we're not going to be able to address it, we're not going to be able to help, we've got to humble ourselves to address it. Now Jesus was just laying one foundation stone when he was responding to the Pharisees. He said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now we didn't even get the rest of the stuff God or Jesus said right there. We're going to do that in the weeks to come. But right now, let's embrace the beauty of the design of God that he made male and female in his image. Let's pray. Thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that these truths would be adopted, impressed upon us, and lived out. While society is upside down in relation to these things, pray that you would help us be a place where there's sanity because we're building our lives on biblical truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves, repent, seek help. You would allow us to change. pray that our church would be one where marriages are strong, families are united, and the design that you've given us is celebrated and not mocked. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.